Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. On tap this week, we have Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Yafit Koto, and John Hurt. This is the initial launch of the third cask. This is the Evil Corporation. We've got a lot to talk about with this film. We're going to be talking about a lot of evil corporations. Evil corporations that have a lot of sinister intentions. And it's really depicted very well in science fiction films. Before we get too much into the nuts and bolts of the movie, though, let's go ahead and tackle the flight question. Mm -hmm. So this was a... A question that I came up with this week because we're talking about Alien. Yes. And Alien has a great tagline on the poster. In space, no one can hear you scream. Perfect. It just perfectly sums up the entire movie. So my question to you, Matt, is what do you think, other than that one, is the best movie tagline? There's a few that I had to decide on. I really like the one from Boogie Nights. A few other ones, like the one from Boogie Nights, is everybody has something special. But my favorite one is for the Rail Tenenbaums. I like this one because I think it's very succinct, it's clever, but essentially it's family isn't a word, it's a sentence. And I think that speaks to the film, which is the torturous existence those people live in. Not only that, but the gravity of the family and the weight of the family. Uh, smart and very germane to the style of film that the Royal Tenenbaums is. So that's mine. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, family isn't a word, it's a sentence. Yeah, that's pretty good. And for those that have seen the movie, it's um, one really dysfunctional family, <laughs> to say the least. So <laughs> I think that perf- perfectly encapsulates, you know, the entire the entire gist of Wes Anderson's movie there. So Gene Hackman's line to Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie when he's... Uh, reminding her that she was adopted. <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, and again, Wes Anderson movies leave a lot of people cold. It's a different kind of humor for sure. Uh, that was my first introduction to him, even before Bottle Rocket. I saw Thrill Ton of Bombs. Is that, your, is that your favorite of his movies? By a mile. Maybe I'm going to say this and people are going to start throwing stuff at their uh, podcast device, but it might be the only one of his that I actually really like. The other ones I can I can sort of tolerate a couple other ones, but mm-hmm. that's the only one that I actually really like. I really like that one too. And the one I saw recently, and I didn't see it when it came out, was Grand Budapest Hotel. That was fairly pleasant as well. See, for us, that was a different one. We actually turned it off after 40 minutes. I just couldn't take it. We just, I just stopped. <laughs> Literally, we stopped. We rented it one night and on demand stopped it. I just couldn't do it. The total ends of the spectrum with Wes Anderson. So let me give you a chance. What's your crack at best tagline, Jesse? I can't believe I'm talking about this franchise again. A couple weeks back when we did Glass, I mentioned Jaws 3D as being the worst third entry in a series. Uh... But for tagline, I'm actually going with the second movie. And the tagline for Jaws 2 is just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. And this really sums up the phenomenon that Jaws was in 1975. And the fears that people had to go swimming in a public pool, to take a bath, to go in the ocean. And Jaws had become such a blockbuster. The sequel came out four-ish years later, so a decent enough time had passed. And you get a tagline like that, 
that perfectly sums up what you want out of your sequel. Now, it's a very lesser movie to the, the first one, but that one always kind of has a, a nice ringing to it. What strikes me about Jaws is the large impact of people that have been affected by that franchise that have never even seen it. Mm-hmm. Go to any pool and watch little kids play, and when they finally finish Marco Polo, god-awful. Then one of them inevitably starts chasing the other one with the shark fin and giving the John Williams to like that. Mm-hmm. It's crazy that they do that and they don't even know the film. Exactly. Um, something about dying in water, right? Because anything in Jaws having to do with the shark, and then also give you to maybe to as equal a degree, but at a different time, is the impact of the shower scene in Psycho mm-hmm. and how you once have you've seen that. You can't ever not unsee that film. Or not think about it when you're taking a shower. And you know what I think it is? I think it's the vulnerability of mammals in water. Mm-hmm. You're so poorly equipped to take on a shark mm-hmm. swimming. And then if you are in the shower, we all have the fear of maybe being walked in on in the bathroom when we're... It's a very vulnerable position. Just, well, what are you going to do? Throw the soap at her? Her? Him? Mom? <laughs> what are you going to do? So it's just it, it's an interesting... Uh, position mm-hmm. so that's it i think those are a couple pretty good taglines yeah. uh there's a bunch of them out there the research on this was as much fun as it was coming up yeah. with uh, ferris bueller yeah one man struggled to take it easy yeah it's really yeah there's a bunch what of was the 40 year old virgin one. Oh, um the older you are the harder it gets <laughs> it's really good too. that's great the it's art the art to a great tagline is summing up you know the film you're about to watch and you know those ones do it very well i think even armageddon which is a pretty forgettable movie mm-hmm. for me, is a good one, right? Earth. It was fun while it lasted. Like, it's just really, really fun to, you know, and then, of course, you like the Army of Darkness one. Trapped in time, surrounded by evil, low on gas. Yeah, that's, that's it's really, yeah, it's good. And it's it has good. a nice humor twist to it there. Yeah. But all right, excellent. So let's get to the, the main event, our happy hour for the day, which is going to be our breakdown of Alien. place in the year 2122 and we are introduced to the space tugging vehicle the Nostromo which is currently on its way back to earth and it has seven crew in tow as well Ripley, Dallas, Parker, Kane, Lambert, Brett and Ash. They are woken in the middle of their journey by the ship's computer called Mother and they are told to go investigate a mysterious distress call on the planet LV-426. As they sit down, Dallas, Lambert, and Kane go investigate the signal, and we are introduced to this derelict spacecraft that we're going to talk about in a little bit above the look of it. And inside is a mysterious discovery of space jockeys and caverns, but most of all, an egg chamber. Mm-hmm. An egg chamber that Kane goes to investigate, and he probably wishes he didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. As this. Facehugger latches onto him 
and won't let go for the life of it. And as they try to remove it, uh, we're introduced to the greatest defense mechanism for a creature that I've seen in a movie in a real long time, acid for blood. So obviously with something like that, you can't just shoot this thing. Right. It'll ruin the ship. Right. So eventually this thing falls off, it dies, and then Kane wakes up seemingly normal. They're all going to go eat dinner. They're going to go back to sleep, go back to Earth. But then we are treated to one of the best sequences in film history, the chestburster scene. Kills Kane, scampers off. <laughs> that scene, it's hard not to picture the parody in Spaceballs now. Yeah. <laughs> With the thing dancing. But it scampers off into the ship. So now it becomes a race to recover this this lost creature. Mm-hmm. And the next time they see it, it is adult size, yeah. eight, nine feet. And it just starts picking off the crew one by one until we're left with just Ripley, Lambert, uh, Parker, and Ash. And it's at this moment that the evil corporation comes into play with... Special Order 937, which is the company that they work for, has sent them to this planet to recover this alien, and all other uh, priorities are secondary, Secondary. and the crew is expendable. So then we find out that Ash, one of the crew members, is actually an android that was placed on the ship by the company (coughs) to ensure the safe return of the specimen. So now we got a bunch of stuff at play here. Evil corporations, sinister alien, and then a fight for survival. So it's decided that they're going to blow up the ship. And then the alien kills off Parker and Lambert. So all is left is Ripley. So she blows up this ship, ready to head back and just float off into space. Hopefully somebody picks her up. But is the alien dead? And we're treated to one last final confrontation that we'll talk about here coming up. But Matt, I want to ask you, what are your initial impressions of Alien? And do you remember the first time you saw this film? I knew you were going to ask me that. And I have to tell you, sadly, I think it was on network TV. Uh, Was this, what, 79? Right, so I was way too young to see it in the theaters. I think I caught it, I'm not kidding you, as like an ABC Sunday night movie filled with all the commercials. So my first time through it wasn't the most enjoyable experience with the film because that's no way to watch a movie. All the good stuff's mostly edited out and it's broken up. Yeah. That was the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it in full length and run uh, was with some friends. We just sat down one night to watch it and it was on and that was, uh, I was think it was maybe 14 or 15, infinitely better. Mm-hmm. My initial impressions of that film are that it's a landmark moment in cinema. I don't think it's perfect. I think it's there's some flaws in there. I, I, I like the movie just fine. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that I think for me works really well with Alien. And this is a slippery slope. And we got to be careful when we do this in film. Because if we do this too much, then you don't ever have story. Sure. Okay, if you and I are sitting here recording this podcast. And we hear, get out. And like blood starts trickling down the wall. We're getting the hell out of Dodge. Exactly. Right? We're not going to stick around. Mm -hmm. That happens in every horror movie at some level. Mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, what's the compelling thing to make the people stay in the house? Like, I think I love that Geico commercial 
where there's the key teens that are running from the guy with the, the serial killer guy. Why don't we run to the... Chainsaws. The... There's a car. No, let's hide behind this wall of chainsaws. Yeah, that's... And, right, it's making fun of this moment in horror. Just, mm-hmm. just leave. Okay, so this movie takes care of that because you can't leave. You mm-hmm. can't just go into space. You'll die. So we've taken that off the table. Mm-hmm. That's a brilliant way to create an unsolvable problem other than, well, through avoidance, other than just addressing it. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is really, really smart. For me, Alien is essentially a horror film or a ghost movie in space. I think you argue that it's a slasher movie Mm -hmm. in space, and I would probably agree with that as well. Mm -hmm. The other movie that does this well, and this is not about this movie, Mm -hmm. is The Thing. Mm-hmm. Another one of your staples. Yeah. You love that film. Okay. Right. Can't get away because you'll freeze. So you're stuck. And that to me creates an environment that is limited. And because the environment's limited, it creates a limited amount of decisions you can make mm-hmm. or opportunities to do away with the opposition. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you? First time seeing an initial impression impressions. So I think I, I was telling you about this the other day, but my mom rented this movie for me on... New Year's Eve, 2000, 2001. And after the chestburster scene, it's about an hour into the movie, the DVD started skipping. So we had to take it back. They didn't have another one. So I never saw the rest of Alien for at least maybe another five years. Oh, man. But in between there, I had discovered uh, James Cameron's sequel, Aliens. And I, I saw that movie at just the right time. I think I was like 13 Oh, perfect. Guns, macho, marines. Cool monsters. Dozens of them compared to just the one. Yeah. Man, that movie's so awesome. Mm -hmm. And so I I saw that and eventually I came back to Alien and I didn't like it as much at first just because it is a bit of a slow burn. Yeah. Man, when they're walking on that planet and they show everything and it's so slow takes a lot to build up to that chest burster scene. Yeah. So because of that, um, you know, that's that's not for everybody. That that slow pace. So as a kid I didn't I didn't like that. I wanted the the Marines and the, the fast paced action. But over time, it's kind of steadily gone up in my book. Okay. As I kind of see how expertly made it was, crafted, the design, the story. And just the history of this of this movie in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the production of this movie because it has a very storied production um, to get to the film that that we watched. So the first screenwriter involved was Dan O'Bannon, who had worked on a film with John Carpenter called Dark Star. And I don't know if you've seen that movie or if anyone's seen it, but it's it was a film a student film Carpenter made while still at USC. And it's more comedy based. I mean, the aliens, a beach ball. It's a little ridiculous. But O'Bannon really wanted, he kind of got the fix of wanting to do the alien story, but a little more serious, a little more grounded in horror. So he actually um, teamed up with this other writer, um, Ron Shusep, and they kind of made a little deal. O'Bannon was saying, I'm trying to write this, this, this story, this. This this alien story, which he originally titled Star Beast. Thank, thank, God. thank God they changed the name of that. Yep. 
But um, he's like, I'm trying to break through on it. Will you help me? And Chu said, said, I will. And if, if you'll help me with mine. And he had just acquired the rights to We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is Total, Total Recall. Recall. Mm-hmm. So they kind of formed this little partnership. But Matt, tell us a little bit about about Chuset. So in 2006, we were at a writer's meeting. Um, it was around Oscar season in Hollywood. And I think we might have been at some B-list Hollywood party that night. <clears throat> but one of the things that happened is there was a significant appearance of different writers and directors that were coming to meet this writing group that I was with at the time. Or that we were with at the time. And uh, one of the people that showed up was Shuset. So he showed up with Bill Martell, and who's kind of a, a hired gun for dialogue when it comes to scripts. And they were telling the story of writing Alien. And one of the issues that they both sort of alluded to, especially Shuset, was what's a unique way that we can have the alien get on board the ship. They said they had struggled time and time again with the sneak attack. Like it sneaks into this capsule or, uh, you know, while they're asleep, it crawls in through the ducts or the vents. And they said, we're just tired of all that. So they had a really great idea about this alien, what they wanted it to look like, but they didn't have a good way to get it on because they want it to be hidden. So this, what I'm about to tell you is important because if this doesn't happen, we don't get the face hugger or the chest burster. And then honestly, I, I don't think the movie works. I agree with you. Because mm-hmm. we get three aliens in that movie, even though it's one, it's three, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the progression is really important. So here it is. Sitting there, we went for days and days back and forth, the studio back and forth, back and forth, and he and O'Bannon finally, in a throwaway line, said, let's just have the alien fuck one of the members of the Nostromo. Light goes off. And so they found a way to literally create the egg. I mean, think about what I just said, right? Mm-hmm. Fuck one of them. So from an egg, it's birthed from the egg on the face and incubated inside Ash? Cain. Uh, Cain. And that's where the whole process of this movie starts in one of those really kind of crazy moments that almost didn't happen because they were just so frustrated They were just throwing stuff out. Like they just said, okay, well, let's go to spitball session. And whatever the 15 things are that come to your mind, you know, how about through food? Blah, blah, blah. Like, let's have fuck one of the members. And bam, egg, chest burster, face hugger. um, Adult. Whatever that one's called. What do you Mm -hmm. call it? The The, the adult xenomorph. Yeah, the xenomorph is born. It's a great, uh, what would you call that? A life cycle for this beast. And just so expertly done. I think that's one of the strong points of the movie. So from there, O'Bannon actually got accepted to do uh, Alejandro Jarowski's adaptation of Dune that they were going to do in the 70s here. And Whoops. This movie was going to be nuts. Pink Floyd was going to do the music. It was going to be kind of crazy. But it's important here because this is actually where he met Chris Foss and H.R. Giger, who essentially designed the look of Alien. Chris Foss was the one who put together the look of the Nostromo. Yeah. From the ships to the tags to this to that. The the look of 20, what did I say, 21, 22 mm-hmm. of what space life is there. And then, of course, Giger is the one who created the look of the alien. The egg, the chestburster, the adult xenomorph. And his design... Is so unique and disturbing. I don't know if you've ever seen any of Giger's like artwork, 
Oh yeah, I have actually. It's 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 like it's beautifully disturbing. Like I think that's the only way you can describe it because it's so intricately drawn, but man, it's freaky as shit. I think part of the genius of horror when it works is taking what we all experience often and just perverting it. Some horror is so outlandish that it doesn't really ever hit home with the audience. I think if you take something like Let's Use Sex and you can bastardize that or corrupt that in a way, you get good horror out of it. And if you go back to the face hugger, and I don't know how to say this without sounding perverse, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It looks like a vagina. It does. And not done on accident. And this is where O'Bannon and Chusette and Giger came to, I think, a, a really nice working relationship because the story in this movie and the look in this movie, I think, match them each other equally well. Mm-hmm. And to take that moment that I just told you, like, here's how we're going to get the alien on the ship and then build from that. Man, what a horrifying way to create an alien. Think about that. Like the act of procreation is so bastardized. It's the the, the essential <clears throat> psychological component of how we get horror. Mm-hmm. So eventually when they get around to finishing this screenplay, they you know they shop it around Hollywood. No one really wants to make the this sci-fi movie. Crazy. And you know, it, it was pitched as Jaws in Space, which that's genius pitching as well sure you see that movie instantly um so eventually it came around to 20th century fox and they kind of just sat on it and then star wars hit Mm -hmm. and so they freaked out because we need more sci-fi we need we don't have any sci-fi scripts oh we got this one here this alien let's do that one next crazy so you know the wheels start turning on it has a budget of nine to eleven million (coughs) dollars And this is where Ridley Scott gets on board. Now, Ridley Scott did a unique thing that I haven't really know how many directors do this, but he storyboarded himself the entire movie and then sent those storyboards to Fox and they added about $2 million to the budget. Was that right? Just based on how it was going to look. And he really wanted to do focus on the horror and he really wanted to do the Texas Chainsaw of science fiction. So, you know, you got these elements, you got Giger, uh, this script, now you have Ridley Scott. So the next important part is, how are you casting this movie? Mm -hmm. And it's a small cast, it's seven people. And in the script, this is unique too. Uh, O'Bannon and Chusette put put a note in there that the the crew's unisex. Right. Cast it as you will. So through that, we get... The cast that we get, and they're off. They're off to to make this movie in London, and they were summarized as truckers in space. Mm-hmm. This crew, this kind of uh, blue collar, these mineral workers harvesting stuff on some planet, uh, type of space workers. They're not like astronauts or anything. Mm-hmm. So thought that was you know pretty pretty interesting. Oh God, it's moving right towards you. <laughs> Uh. Move! Get out of there! Move! Down! Move down! Move down! Get out! Oh. No, no, no! Why the other way, go! 
So now at this point, we have all our elements in place. We have this tight screenplay with a really unique way of how to get this creature on board the ship. You have the design by H.R. Giger. It's really going to set the creature design apart from other monsters we've ever seen before. Sure. You have a, a director on board who's also fairly fresh as well. He hadn't done any of his you know, big movies. This was kind of like his first big, big thing he did. And then um, you have the casting of Sigourney Weaver, which in my research for, for this podcast, I discovered it was really down to her and Meryl Streep. And uh, Meryl Streep didn't want to jump into this movie because her uh, partner had just passed away, John Cazali. Fredo. Fredo Corleone, yeah. I think he had died of cancer in 78, right around the time of the deer hunter. So that's pretty interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of led the way for Sigourney Weaver, this relatively unknown, to kind of take this lead role. And she doesn't even have top top billing. It's it's Tom Skerritt, actually. Which, that's puzzling, too. Um, I mean, I go back and look, but Tom Skerritt. And I think it goes to the importance of the title of the film, right? It's not Space Truckers mm-hmm. or the co- the crew of the Nostromo or Nostromo. The title of the movie is Alien. And there's no question that it is the star of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. From right down from the look to who's driving the action. It's its movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's genius that they kind of used a lesser cast to feature the alien. And they, and they used... They landed on the title Alien, and it's interesting because the word alien works as both a noun and an adjective. Right. So, however you want to interpret that within the confines of the movie, you know, that works pretty well as well. The other little anecdote from the production of this movie that I find fascinating, and you know, I'm a music, I'm a music guy. Sure. The, the score. So, eventually, while they were making this movie, Ridley Scott and his editor, they do, did something that... I think happens more frequently than than we know about. So when they're editing the film, they put placement tracks in the thing so they can hear music while it's you know going through going through its process. Um, so they're working with Jerry Goldsmith. So they actually use some of his music from some older movies, and Jerry Goldsmith actually composed this full score, and it's excellent. But then they didn't want to use the score. They wanted to go with the music that they had placed in the tracks. So if you never had the chance to listen to it, it's a special feature on the on the DVD. You can listen to the whole movie with the original score. And it's like 100% different. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's a really good score, but it never... All these placement tracks got used instead. And I just... I, I couldn't believe that, really. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just a a little anecdote there. And really, Scott actually wanted Ripley to die at the end. He wanted the alien to bite bite her head off. So Fox was quick to, and wisely, or maybe not, (laughs) to uh, let that happen for the the sequel potential that this movie had. Yeah, I think they knew probably shortly into the P&A on this film that they were going to have a hit on their hands. If for no other reason, not through quality of film, but just because of the hunger in the audience for another science fiction entry. Mm-hmm. Literally, the the following science fiction piece to Star Wars. So, you know, people are going to gravitate toward this. And if it's alien, I don't think we're expecting the Millennium Falcon and the Cantina the way Star Wars was. But we're really interested 
in space looking types, aliens, monsters, what have you. And sure enough, boy, they monetized it and they were smart to say, look, it's horror. It's got to be franchisable. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, the story now. Yeah. And some of these heavy themes that are actually at play. Well, one of the things that obviously this movie does really well is is hide the reveal of what the audience is expecting till pretty late in the movie. Uh, you could argue in this movie that you don't actually see the xenomorph until almost the end of the film. Like you get a piece of it here or you get a look at it here, but you don't really get the full look of the xenomorph until really kind of late in the film. Maybe when it's got Ripley in the escape pod and kind of going after her. <coughs> and I think that works pretty well. Yeah. Um, in modern horror, in the new it that was released two years ago and, uh, the Nun, which came out last year. Eventually, those these movies overuse the creature, That's us, yeah. the antagonist, to the point where it's not scary anymore because it's so in your face. No, by the end of it, Pennywise is more com- like comic looking mm-hmm. than it is horrifying, mm-hmm. right? And the Nun also, for as great as the Nun is in Conjuring Two, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, a little goes a long way. Yeah, exactly. And we we've talked, we've said that phrase. Many times throughout all these podcasts, you know, the less of what you see sometimes works better. Right. This is a great example of that. You know, the aliens in shadow, it's, you know, cut really sporadically so you barely see it. Much the same way in Jaws, we don't really see the shark like full on very often. The alien in Aliens plays the same role that Native Americans play in Westerns. Okay, so essentially, science fiction and westerns are the same genre of film. It's just the setting takes place. Mm-hmm. It's space truckers or space cowboys or whatever you want to call it in an undiscovered territory or unventured land. And when they get there, who they run into is where you get your story. So from you know Wayne and Ford and the searchers and so on and so forth and the exploration of the undiscovered in North America and then discovering Native Americans and the conflict that ensues... Just replace all that with space and Native Americans being the alien. And they do a really good job in this film. Geiger does a really good job in this film of creating an alien that I'm going to set you up for this because you're going to take our audience to school on this. Get in the school bus, guys, because here it comes. The alien's head is very phallic looking. Here it is, Jesse. Yeah, exactly. Let him have it. Take him to school, buddy. So real quick, though, Sideshow Collectibles has a replica alien head. From this film, costs about eighteen hundred dollars. Wow. It's but it's it's beautiful, mm-hmm. um, just the design of it, and it's it's probably about you know two and a half feet. The thing looks like a big penis. Yeah. And, or or some of my friends says like oh that, that looks like 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 a dildo because it, it it does because it's a very phallic shape the way it's elongated and and looks like that. And that's where these themes of, of sex really come into play. The whole movie's really all about sex. Right down from when they're walking up to this spacecraft, this derelict spacecraft, shaped like a, like a woman's fallopian tube. Mm-hmm. This, right. This birthing chamber that houses the eggs, the start of life itself. <laughs> it's, you know, th- that's the beginning of it. You already mentioned earlier, you know, the face hugger. The orifice, the mouth, 
that puts the tube down um, whoever is, is trying to impregnate looks like a vagina. Yeah. Especially in Cameron's sequel, they have some face huggers in some glass tubes. My God, it's just, it's, it's, it's exactly what they modeled it after. And then from there you have the chest burster, this other phallic shaped device. And then you get the full adult and just, just the design, the look, it's, it's all elongated, um, to, 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 to quite the extent. And the, the alien, the alien's head in, in this film, and this is interesting because they didn't do this in any of the sequels. There's a human skull at the, the base of the, of the head. Yeah. That kind of, you know, goes back and it's translucent. You can see it and it's really eerie and shocking. And that's something that they nixed in the design and I, I, I never found out why. To that, in the shape of the alien's head, I think you can further that with the mouth that protrudes from the mm-hmm. head. That's mm-hmm. almost an erection, if you will. And then when it's incited or in an anticipation or an aroused state... The amount of drool that is seeping off of that alien's mouth is not done on accident. I don't want to say fertile because that would mean like that's going to bring life into, mm-hmm. but fertile insofar as what the desires of the alien is. Mm-hmm. I think it's masterfully shot. And here's the question that I've never been able to answer. Sure. With the story that I sort of talked about with Shusette and the idea of how we're going to get the alien on the ship, I wonder if that was a result of Ridley Scott's directorial license to sort of create this element of sex throughout the whole movie or if that was already embedded in the script and Shusette and O'Bannon finally figured it out with something that they had crafted from from page one fade in on the screenplay I'll give you a direct quote from O'Bannon beautiful one thing that people are disturbed about is sex I said that's how I'm going to attack the audience I'm going to attack them sexually and I'm not going to go after the women in the audience I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross their legs. So the movie's also obsessed with with, uh, with birth, the beginning of life. And we get two very different versions of that in this movie. You know, the opening bit when they're awakening from uh, sleep chambers. the sleep chambers. It's really white, sterile, mm-hmm. clean, happy, peaceful, you know. Kane wakes up and it's very euphoric. Serene. Yeah, like a baby being born. It's, yeah. And then we get the second birth, which is the birth of the alien. And that scene, it's real drab, it's shadowy, it's violent, it's bloody, it's horrific. Yeah. Um, you have these two, you know, contrasting birthing mechanisms. And then, you know, contrasting that with Again, the derelict spacecraft representing the womb of the archaic mother. This this unholy birth that is going to beset this crew. But there's another really fascinating scene in the movie when Ripley finds out about the company's intentions. And Ash isn't going to let this happen. She's not going to let them destroy this thing. So he attacks Ripley and Ripley's dazed and knocked out. And he rolls up a pornographic magazine and starts to choke her in the mouth with it. Another really phallic image, but referenced there with, with the pornography. And it's it's all over the the walls yeah, in that scene. Yeah, it's cutouts it's a much. really bizarre scene. I think if you take that idea 
and you believe that this O'Bannon quote was what they really carried out in the film, there's a lot of ways that you can go with what's happening in that scene. Mm -hmm. I think you further can back up any of those assertions, which we don't need to get into in here. It's pretty on the nose. I think the, our listeners can decode that on their on their own. But as Ripley goes about destroying Ash, she knocks his head off, right? Just beats his head off. Mm -hmm. And the genesis of Ash when they get him going again in that very milky covered in that white film-like state also carries on more to the same idea. I know that he's really not covered, and this is disgusting, but it's done on purpose, per Seaman's own quote. It's not covered in semen, but it's not far from it. Mm. And I think what's great about that is Ripley's the one that not only put him in that state, but then rebirths him because if i'm not mistaken she's the one that puts the final pieces on the connection mm -hmm. that gives his body or his head life again think about that to take away life and then to put back life into the movie is mm -hmm. really genius again another uncanny birthing scene so you know at the end of that that, that features into another theme that's really at play and that's the theme of motherhood yeah in this film and then in the, in the sequel um, giving us this alternative path to birth and life. The ship's mate computer is called Mother. Mother. And it's interesting because this ship is essentially runs runs their lives, tells them what to do, gives them advice. Mm -hmm. Dallas is always going back to it to, to search for advice. What are my chances? Um, and this thing eventually sends them to their ultimate demise. Mm -hmm. And then when Dallas is gone... Ripley's the commanding female element in the rest of the movie, the, the new mother, so to speak. And then to talk about the sequel just real briefly, motherhood's even more at play yeah. when uh, you know Ripley comes back from, from her journey, finds out that her daughter's uh, been dead for a few years. She's been floating in space for 57 years. So then she takes up a new motherly relationship with Newt, Newt, this abandoned orphan now, now that her parents and uh, family are all have been killed by the xenomorphs. Um, and they strike up a, a, a really interesting bond that she didn't think she could have before. And then we have the queen alien there. Queen alien. The queen alien that gives birth to all the aliens. So mother versus mother. It's, it's, it's real genius the way they created this Ripley character and then made it all about these really interesting themes. I'm not the biggest James Cameron fan and this podcast isn't about aliens, but I do want to say at this moment, the fact that he honored the original theme of alien and carried it forth in aliens I, equally well. I think a little bit better actually. Okay. Whereas maybe alien is a bit more of sex or birth. This is more about the um, maternal role of motherhood, but nonetheless tied together. I have to give him a definite nod for not only a fine film, but sticking to the creative vision of what, when Alien works, it works because of that simple premise. Mm -hmm. So for all the good that we've talked about in Aliens, there's one part that I have to bring up that really makes this movie tough for me. 
I think it's set up really well. I just think the delivery is a little bit flawed. For all of the moments up to the escape pod where we rarely see the xenomorph in full, whether the camera's on too tight to get the full look or it's dark, uh, kind of common tropes in horror. The moment in this film that I just really struggle with is the Tom Skerritt in the ventilation system or air ducts or whatever the hell that is and the xenomorph's arrival. I think it's set up really well. Okay, so he's trying to get away and we see on the computer screen this red dot that's tracking him down and it's closing and it's closing and we get to an intersection of several ports in the ventilation system, if you will, and the xenomorph is literally on top of him. Veronica Cartwright in maybe her best moment in the movie is just absolutely, maybe her best move, moment since anything since the birds yeah. um, uh, kind of warms him. And then Scarrett turns around and we get the first reveal of the xenomorph. And for as cool as it is, I think that shot sucks. The hands are not the same. The face is not the same. And to me, that moment where the xenomorph goes the boo and kind of like puts his hands out to grab Dallas looks like a guy Mm -hmm. in a cheap costume to me. And I almost wish that they didn't show it. Like if we just saw the red dot go to Dallas and we hear some sort of guttural last throes of life, mortality escaping you in the comm system. And then we just see the red dot move on. You could do it if you believe, like I do, that less is more in a less is more way. Because that that scene for me, it's a nice jump scare. And the first time it kind of will rock you a little yeah. bit. If you haven't <clears throat> seen this movie in some time and you have seen it, go back and watch that that moment again. That It's, I think, not handled well. Pretty obviously a guy in a suit. Um, but I'm with you. A, a good jump scare. But there's an even uh, there's another moment later when they're making the preparations to blow the ship up, and Parker and and Lambert are getting like air coolant, and the alien like kind of comes in, and takes care of 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 Parker, and then it goes back for Veronica Cartwright, and it's kind of like moving its arms, yeah, like, kind of again hypnotic real, state. Yeah, that that's that's a weird shot. It is. I, I can't believe it made the final cut. But again, very obviously a guy in a suit. And there was a like a six foot eight dude in, in this suit. So again, talking about, you know, the Jaws element uh, of, of your villain, the less we see of it, I think the better it works. In those moments where it's like full on, yeah, that's, I'm kind of with you. It doesn't, it doesn't really, you lose a sense of believability. I think about the alien's movements and it's important for the film that it moves differently than humans does because then it creates a difference in our minds between what the alien is and what the human is. And that sequence you're talking about, it's just so syncopated. It's moving too rhythmically and too fluidly. And for me, the alien should move <clears throat> like a cat that was going through some bad trip with uh, some amphetamines, like sharp and quick and doesn't move the way we flow. Like humans, when humans move, yeah. we flow. Mm-hmm. Such a strange conversation we're having right now. Yeah. We flow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the alien should move 
like jazz, not like fine orchestrated music. Does think, that make sense? I think body language is a a real important part in a film performance. This scene horror. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we're going to talk about that when we discuss RoboCop because Peter Weller in the suit, that's a body performance and you have to move a certain way to make it believable. That way it's not so clunky. Yeah. And, you know, that's it. The alien, when you fully see it, it is a bit clunky, isn't it? I mean, I think both of those certain and both of these instances were being a little nitpicky. And I don't want to be too much like that because you can sort of nitpick anything to death. I just, I give pause the same way that you do. For all of the moments of greatness that Scott delivers in this film, mm-hmm. I'm not sure who talked him into, yeah, gotcha. And, you know, I'm doing some version of 1980 body wave, um, jazzercise, what yeah. attack. And... They do do with Parker what I want them to do with Dallas. We don't really see him get it. Like we see it through him, but you don't get a lot of, you get the alien's extended mouth like into him. Yeah, yeah. But you don't see the alien like attack, consume. It's just a brief, wah, got him. And that's what I want with Dallas. So he gets that part right. Although if, again, the question would be like, why is Parker there unless he's just so scared he can't move? And maybe, mm-hmm. um, and that scene, by the way, there's just the amount of water that they use during the attacks in this film has always kind of interested me too. From like the mouth that shoots out and the saliva on it to, um, I forget what his name is. The guy that's looking for the cat. Oh, Brett. Yeah, Brett. What's his real name? Hey. Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> when Harry Dean Stanton's looking for his cat, which there's a whole thing we could get into on why they're looking for a cat that's a pet you know like the pussy cat we can get into that whole thing too if you want but like that sequence where the the water's just dripping off those things <coughs> for no real reason other than it's just the whole movie continues to keep it wet or here yeah. it is mm-hmm. lubricated mm-hmm. it's funny because they actually to lube up the the alien to make it look more glistening. They used KY jelly for that. Of course they did. Um, one of the other interesting things that I noticed on this viewing of Alien that I really didn't understand, and maybe it was for the cat. Once they set the ship destroying in motion, there's ten minutes to to right. get off, or if you could turn it off five minutes before Ripley goes through the ship runs into the alien, loses the cat, and then runs all the way back to the the, the self-destruct system mm-hmm. and tries to turn it off. And I don't understand why she was trying to turn it off. Um, that kind of perplexed me that this time watching it. To save the cat, again, that's character motivation that doesn't really... That's jumping the shark a little bit, or in this case, jumping the cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit troubling. Although I just think it's an excuse to watch her have that final showdown with Mother. Mm-hmm. We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up. The shuttle won't take four. Well, then why don't we trust Rutherford? I'm not going in these drawers. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. 
We don't know That's that. the only way. So the whole point or theme of this cask is the evil corporation. And in this particular story, the evil corporation is Wayland yutani Corporation. Mm-hmm. And that's the company with the designs, we'll find out later, led by a very aged Guy Pierce. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that has set the Nostromo on this suicide mission, mm-hmm. if you will, just to bring back this alien. This thing that they don't know about. So For, To weaponize it, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Eventually weaponize it. And you see more of that in the in the sequel. But here you get the the seedlings of it. So you have this this shadow corporation that um, I, they don't even mention the name in this movie. Uh, I think it's on like a patch yeah. on like Dallas's arm or jacket. But ominously referred to as the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's even that's even better. But um, it's a company that doesn't trust the crew with what they plan to do with the alien. So that's why Ash is there. Ash is the failsafe to ensure the safe capture and return of this device and essentially just sacrifice the crew and we'll be okay with that. So, you know, for a corporation, uh, you know, that's that's pretty evil. But it's something that they don't even know what this thing is. And until they go and find it, we don't know how it got there. We don't know the beginnings of this thing. Maybe we don't want to know that, but um, yeah. this company is a null void shadow puppet master and quite frankly, really inhuman. Well, that they would risk all of life on earth as they bring this unknown entity home mm-hmm. speaks to the evilness that you just mentioned. And I love that they use this, this robot mm-hmm. to carry out their their evil bidding if you will yeah it's that he's the doctor so your your health is dependent upon this robot doctor with little concern for the actual health of people boy that sounds kind of like modern day insurance (laughs) yeah it does anyway uh and it goes off in there and breaks every protocol of of ranking order on the ship and what the the quarantine issues are. Yep. And all of that is for the chance to bring the thing back in hopes that we can weaponize it, aka monetize it, mm-hmm. for the betterment of Waylon Utani. Mm-hmm. And that is truly a nefarious motivation, but it's also a really it makes for a good villain. Oh yeah. Because it's not that sort of tired. We want to destroy everything with this alien so that then we can rule over it. Which mm-hmm. is so stupid. I hate that that character motivation for bad guys. This is literally entrepreneurship, risk and reward to the for 10th monetary degree. Gain. For monetary gain. We will risk everything. Because mm-hmm. if it works out, man, we're all going to be super rich. Mm-hmm. And this character of Ashes. A little bit different. You went on a rant a couple episodes ago about about the sentient robots. So Mm -hmm. you don't even know Ash is a robot until they whack his head off. He's got all this crap coming out of him. Um, But he's not a robot trying to find life's purpose. Right. He's he's essentially uh, the enforcing element of this company. By any means necessary, I will kill the crew if I have to to get this back to you. And that's truly, truly an evil corporation. Yeah, capitalistic motivation without any morality. Mm-hmm. Why else carry that through any other version than 
a human that's an alien. I mean, sorry, a human that's a robot. And it's a nice juxtaposition in the sequel when there's another android, Bishop, and Ripley's not very keen to trust him based on her experiences with Ash. And he actually ends up being a decent ally, one of the people that actually helps out Ripley. One of the things I really like about the Ash character compared to some of the sentience or trying to claim sentience from a non-human organism, whether it be Rucker Hauer and Blade Runner or any of the aforementioned things we've talked about, mm-hmm. more human than human in Blade Runner. I love that Ash tells the surviving members, I think it's three at that point of the Nostromo, that they have his deepest sympathies. Is that what he says? Because mm-hmm. it's I don't not... want to tell you about your chances, but you have my sympathy. And it's such a great big fuck you. There's nothing sincere about that because he's unable to be sincere. He's not human. It's cold. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It is such a cold parting shot because there's nothing. He's basically resigned himself and them to the fact like it's curtains. And although he doesn't have the ability to kind of give the wink and flip him the bird with the wry smile, it's such a poor cold calloused attempt to soothe over the end of their lives it's such a fine moment in Mm -hmm. this film especially covered with that crap the way he is and just his head speaking and right now we have a drink coasters that actually have Wayland yutani corporation on them and matt what does that little tagline say there building better worlds yeah wonder what kind of world they hope to build with this creature that they don't know what what's coming to them certainly ones where they seem to be the all powerful and super wealthy overlords so real quick we want to wrap up with just a couple more things uh there's a director's cut for this movie that's actually shorter actually improves some of the that pacing that uh that real slow build but actually puts in a few interesting sequences like the cocooning of dallas at the end at the end of the movie and ripley runs into him while Again, while she's running this 10-minute countdown, and Dallas is just like, kill me. So she she burns him. But um, that's not in the theatrical release. It's funny to hear you say that because that's the version that I do with my students, that director's cut where, where she finds Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe I haven't seen the, three, the theatrical mm-hmm. release. I think what's cool about that, and I'm not sure why they cut that cinematically or theatrically, it seems to speak to the potential of using him as a way to harvest more face-hugging xenomorph-to-be opportunities. I, that was a mistake to take that out in the theater, Jesse. Yeah, and it's definitely uh, the sequel brings that element back. Sure, yeah. This cocooning of this colony with all these chest bursters. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the legacy of the Alien franchise past this movie uh for me the second one is so good it's one of the few entries where you could say is the first one or second one better right exactly godfather one godfather two paranormal one paranormal two um halloween one halloween two i know you're like wanting to come across the table and kill me now but uh for me it's it's uh really good in the second one what's nice about the second one is it's so drastically different from this one. Mm-hmm. This is the horror, the stalking. Um, and this sec- is the second one's a combat movie. Yep. Action, heavy. 
Um, so they contrast each other very well. And then from there we go to Alien 3, which the story in the making of Alien 3 is better than the actual movie. This prison planet. It's Fincher, right? It's David Fincher's first David, movie. Listen to that. That's David Fincher. That's crazy mm-hmm. that he made that movie. But he had all these suits looking over his shoulder. And the movie suffers a lot because of interference. And David Fincher even said, I was surprised I even made another movie after this. Boy, does he really? Seven. <coughs> God bless and David Fincher. After that, we get Alien Resurrection. The cloning of Ripley now. So now we're we're getting into crazy territory. Uh, the one with Winona Ryder and Ron Perlman. So from there, the Alien franchise kind of takes a bit of a, a nap. And then eventually we get the, the crossover Alien versus Predator, which both of those are pretty atrocious to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we caught wind in like 2011 that Ridley Scott was coming back to the franchise and he was going to make this alien prequel called Prometheus, which was going to explain the origins of the space jockey, how we got to LV-426. That movie to me is actually a really fine film. I know most people are maybe shocked that I said that. I think that film is really entertaining. The problem with that movie was that they tried to not say that there was a direct tie to the alien or the xenomorph in it. And if you've seen the end of the film, the last five minutes of the movie, clearly it is how the alien is created. Now, the engineers, these large space hulking humanoid things that actually end up being the space jockey that we see in the first one Mm -hmm. is tied in really well. They're just unexplained. Except for that opening bit where we see the... uh, um, <coughs> engineer pour something into the water system, yeah. essentially bioengineering what will become the downfall of man. And here's where Prometheus really lost me. I like that film. I own it. I It's on. I like to watch that movie. I don't have a problem with it. The problem with that film is in a Q&A, Ridley Scott is asked, why do the engineers try to kill the humans? And we get to... This answer, because the humans killed Jesus. And you can find it. You can see the video. Like, that is the words from his mouth. And now... And that's just ridiculous. I hate the Matrix for that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm don't. i not even anti-Jesus. Like, I'm good with God. I'm mm-hmm. just saying, I don't think that that is any way an acceptable reason for that to happen. If you even just consider how time plays out. Mm-hmm. If... If the engineers and Prometheus are the prequel to Alien, Alien takes place in what, 21, 27? 22. 22, 27? Mm-hmm. So sometime between AD and 22, 27, the engineers arrive, destroy, or and then like, the, 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 the time doesn't make sense on that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I start to struggle with Prometheus. My biggest issue with it is the explanation of how we got there. And maybe that's just my personal preference, but it's the reason I didn't like Rob Zombie's Halloween or the Star Wars prequels. It's just these great villains, these elements with a lot of mystery in their backstory. I think they work better as absolutes. We we get it. We're, we get into it late in the game and 
we take the evil from that point and we run with it. This over explanation of why things are created and why it's evil and what turned it evil, it kind of, to you, does it, doesn't it kind of lose some of the luster on the paint job? I wouldn't say some. I'd say, yeah, it takes a you know, sanding element to it. Mm-hmm. And then as the story unfolds and we get more information through the Michael Fassbender character, uh, David, one and two, mm-hmm. about why that occurs, it gets worse. Yeah. Uh, so then I'll take you to Alien Covenant. Covenant. I know this is a number one on your shelf of all time must watches. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, atrocious to say the least. Yeah. And it, again, kind of collapses under the weight of its own philosophy and, and origin story. Yeah, there's like black spore pods on this planet, but then they're bur- David, the android's birthing the xenomorphs in this cave. Ah. Uh, you know, you eventually get a more refined version of what Geiger's design was in this movie. But do we care anymore at this point? No, and the other thing, too, that's troubling is we see how the engineers have also been used as what the chest burster will come through, which speaks to the differenting size of the xenomorphs. And by this time in the franchise, all of the xenomorphs are so large it doesn't even matter. And then if Wayland Utani created David to then make sure that the birthing of the xenomorphs through the black spore virus was done effectively via the engineer vehicles that literally are in a mass gravesite that looks like a religious cult, I'm out. I don't even know where to go anymore. That is so convoluted and nonsensical. None of that even makes sense because there's no markers of time for one. And secondly, all we're getting from Waylon Utani is flashbacks to an aged Guy Pierce. And here's the other thing that they throw in there. Oh, it was about eternal life and the fountain of youth. How does that fit into any of this? It doesn't. And that's it's it's such a far cry from this first movie. I'll tell you the sequel that I want to see. It's been talked about, rumored. Um, Neil Blomkamp, who directed... District 9, Elysium, actually has a lot of concept art for an Aliens sequel that's a direct continuation from Cameron's film. Ignores all the other baggage. Um, Bring back Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bean. Uh, and then Cameron recently said something about wanting to pursue this version further. After that, seven other versions of Avatar that he makes? Yeah, after, 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 after that. So Jesus, please no. That could be something a little more interesting than this long gestating origin story of how the xenomorphs landed on this planet. It's just so convoluted at this point with Ridley Scott's philosophy. So that's kind of the state of the franchise at this point. I don't think he even has a philosophy about it anymore. I think... I think he doesn't know how to get there. <laughs> okay. And through that, we have so many tangential possibilities as to what the origin of the alien is. It's troubling. And then again, here's the other thing that I think you will both agree on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the origin story for the alien is a story we even care about. Yeah. If you're going to go to space and visit other worlds... We don't need to have an origin story about how that other world was created. We just need to know that there's another world. Because we are in our time trying to explore their time. And the minute we leave 
our time and story to get the origin story of the other planet, then you have so much legacy and backstory and choice and frailty and all of the things that we've established here in Earth or on Earth. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to do. Let's just let there be an alien species out there. And if Weyland Utani has found out about it, that's all we need through some means they found out about it and they want to bring it back to make money. That's all you need. I don't care how he got to be the xenomorph. It's a lot. We see it. It's a lot more simple. Way simpler. Right. Excellent. So let's get to our ratings of the film. So for our listeners, we could give just a, a brief review of the ratings that we have. So... We have Rock Gut, one star. Uh, well, two star. Call, three star. Single Barrel, four. And Top Shelf, five star. So Matt, how would you rate Alien? I'd say that Single Barrel with a <coughs> three star to four star minus. The reason I'm going to say Single Barrel is there's no blend in that and it tends to be unique. I think this is a really unique movie and a really important part of film, which is horror. And they found a cool way to do it. That answered some of the things that we always ask when it comes to horror movies. Why don't you just leave? Why don't you move somewhere else? Like, they couldn't. And so because they came up with a really unique way to present an enclosed environment with no immediate escape. And then chose to use motherhood slash sexuality slash the feminine um, ability to procreate, if you will. I think you have a very unique film and clearly many iterations of this movie would speak to that and none of them have been done as well like aliens is good but it's not the same that's not a horror movie that's an action movie mm-hmm. so for me single barrel uh, it's a really fine film i find myself liking this movie the more i watch it and talk about it and i think therein lies the trap with this movie it's pretty cerebral when you get down to it, if you want to get down to it. And if you don't, it can also just be a pretty enjoyable experience. Mm-hmm. So the trap is, how deep do you want to go? The deeper you go, the better it's going to get. And I think that's what this is for, is we'll help you get deeper. And so for me, yeah, single barrel. Um, single barrel. Excellent. So I don't think there's any surprises where I'm going to be going with my rating. I mean, for God's sakes, look at these coasters that you have. The hat um, on your head that says Nostromo. Exactly. Yeah. I have a, a a dog running around the house right now. Her name is Ripley. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a top shelf film for me. Five stars. Um, but it didn't always used to be that. Like I said, Aliens was... Aliens is one of my Desert Island films. Okay. Found to be Stranded. I want that movie there with me. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it's always been up here. Like a personal favorite. And Alien is... Kind of down here, it was good, but was no aliens. Over the years, as I've gotten older and kind of discovered the production history, the road to Alien, uh, the casting, the themes, how intricate the, the plot is, this life cycle of this creature, aliens risen through the ranks. So in my, my top movies, if, if Aliens was number eight, Aliens number nine. Okay. Like they're 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 neck and neck. I think this is a really important movie for science fiction mm-hmm. with arguably maybe the coolest creature 
ever created on film. I agree. Like the look of it just screams terror. Uh, the life cycle, the egg, face hugger, chest burster. Um, it's very unique. Uh, th- those those themes. It's, it's a movie about sex. Uh, this nefarious company. And then most of all, I think the characterization of Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. I can't think of very many female film characters that come across as, you know, so... That really have to take the film by its horns. And she does that in this one and in the second one. And then, you know, in recent memory, you know, you have like Katniss in The Hunger Games, Rey in Star Wars. But Ellen Ripley's almost like the original feminine hero. Yeah. And um, I think I think an important film character uh, in film history. So because of all those things, I tend to ignore everything past the second one and that doesn't hurt the legacy of this movie for me but this is a single um not a single barrel this is a top shelf film for me it's a really unique ride and if you haven't seen it you need to yeah you need to even it, it's going to be a slow burn for most um yeah for about the first hour about the first 70 minutes the last 40 minutes are not creature effects might be a little hokey but the chest pressure scene that's it's on par with the shower scene from Psycho. Sure, sure. Well said. It's totally legend. If if you take one thing away from it, you'll take that away from this film. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's all I have to say say about that. That's going to wrap up the coverage of Alien this week. But before we go too much further, we have to finish up with our nightcap question. So, being that it was Oscars week ish this week, we decided to go with the best best picture winners winner. So there's several that could come into play here for both of us. But Jesse, I'll pose the question to you first. Of all the Best Picture winners since the Academy Awards have been the Academy Awards, what is your best Best Picture winner? And I think we said earlier, there's a lot of stinkers in there. Probably less great films, more mediocre. I'd say two to one. So I actually wanted to pick a a genre movie. And if there's one genre that is neglected time and time again by the Academy, it's the horror genre. Sure. And I think there's maybe been four nominated for Best Picture. The Exorcist, Sixth Sense, Get Out, and the film I'm going to pick, The Silence of the Lambs. So I think, you know, this is important for horror, but also there's only been three films to win the Big Five Academy Awards. Pitcher, Director, Screenplay, Actor, and Actress. This is one of the three. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty remarkable feat. And I think the film for speaks for itself. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter. It's one of the great villain performances. Clarice Star, St- Starling by uh, Jodie Foster. Another great performance. And I think the kind of the dark horse in that movie is uh, Ted Levine. It's Buffalo Bill. Yeah. It's just as scary as, as Lecter. And Lecter's on the screen for 16 minutes. He won Best Actor. The movie carries a, a real heavy presence of of that genre, that that thriller genre that would become popular again in the '90s uh, with Seven and films like that by by David Fincher. But I think the you know the legacy of that movie it's it's one of my favorite movies. But I think it's just a truly great film directed by Jonathan Demme. Mm-hmm. He passed last year. I, I think that's a that's a great movie. 
I, I think great is wildly understated. This is one that you and I could have a battle over who got to use this one on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And I think for everybody that might roll their eyes and say, oh, so the fact that it's one of three films that's won the big five, I think another one might be Capra's It Happened One Night. Mm-hmm. And uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. Um, <laughs> you are in Hollywood's royalty yeah. at that point. Um, so yeah, that's a really strong entry. Mm. Also one of the greats for me as well. <laughs> this was a tough category for me to decide. I went through and looked at all of them. And like you just alluded to, I found a lot of stuff on there that I was rolling my eyes at, my eyes at more than I was yeah. singing its praises. There were some strong possibilities for me. Both of the Godfather entries are in there. Uh, for me, On the Waterfront is in there. Both of the Billy Wilder entries are in there. Lost Weekend and The Apartment. Uh, Rebecca, you know, I love Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with my personal favorite in those, and I love all those films. But, you know, Deer Hunter gets strong consideration as well, speaking of John Cazale. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Midnight Cowboy. The reason I'm going to go with Midnight Cowboy is I think it's done in a way where an entertaining story is presented while handling uh, rather controversial material in a way that wasn't heavy-handed or preachy or political it's a bromance movie about a pimp and a male prostitute that are both infinitely troubled and as much as that story is about John Voight's failed attempt at becoming a gigolo it's where his caring for Dustin Hoffman as Ratso Rizzo and his his maladies and incapabilities, but yet wisdom creates a true, honest depiction of a bromance. And there's some scenes in that movie that are really difficult to watch, mm-hmm. even today. That movie almost never made it. Uh, X rating, yep. way too salacious, and the Hays Code had gone away in 1970, but the effects of the Hays Code were still definitely in play. You go back and watch it, and there's really nothing that you see that's appalling, but what you know is occurring insofar as what you're not seeing again, same theme for the day, right? What yep. you don't see. Mm-hmm. I think it's handled really, really well. It's acted superbly. This is Dustin Hoffman at the height of his powers. Like, gosh, you think about like what he did. And this is like, from little big man to the graduate to this, like this guy's mm-hmm. killing it at this time. And that movie to me is infinitely watchable. Mm-hmm. Every time it's on, I can watch it. And because of that, that's going to be my best, best picture, which is funny. Had you asked me this question just cold two weeks ago, Mm. I don't know if that movie would have even been in my thoughts until I went back and I really looked at the list. And that to me was the winner. And I'll tell you this, I think the history of the Academy Awards, I think that film represents a very important turning point for Films in consideration. Sure. Prior to that, it was the Lawrence of Arabia. Epically large Hollywood, pretty. Or yeah. these music, My Fair Lady. Yep. Or a story about itself. Yeah. And then here comes this film, this real... Gritty. Gr- very gritty. Uh, risque. You know, controversial. And it does represent a turning point. I think this film paves the way for films like The French Connection. Sure. The Godfather. To kind of be in consideration for, for that, and you're—it's kind of a—it's a bit of a heartbreaking movie. I don't want to spoil it, 
But oh, it's super tragic. It's it's one I saw later in life, but it's a great film. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Rice Smile Films. We'll be returning next week looking at another evil, heavy-handed corporation with James Cameron's 1984 film, The Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're, we're going to be talking about Cyberdyne and Skynet. like Seticana. Yes, exactly. Um, but that, that'll be the, the film on tap for next week. But um, go ahead and raise one up, Matt. Cheers. And this Cheers, is Jesse. Jesse and Matt, last survivors of the Spaceship Nostromo, signing off. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Play Music. Alien is property of 20th Century Fox and Brandywine Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.